My name is Maggie Freeling. I'm a journalist and producer, and this is Unjust and Unsolved, a podcast about people who I believe are wrongfully incarcerated for crimes that are now unsolved. You've surely heard stories like these on the news, but the thing is, the ones you've heard about barely scratch the surface. The Innocence Project gives a conservative estimate that about 20,000 innocent people are currently locked away in U.S. prisons. After reading some of these stories, I felt compelled to do something. So I sent 20 letters to people who are locked up despite evidence pointing away from them. Some responded through mail, some emailed, and some called me on contraband cell phones. But all wanted their stories to be heard. So I left my public radio job and decided to do just that. In each episode, I speak with those people, their loved ones, supporters, and lawyers, to shed light on how they wound up incarcerated for decades, despite the evidence, and how that means the crimes they were convicted of are still unsolved. This week, I'm telling the story of Jermaine Smothers. On the night of May 11, 1995, 19-year-old Jermaine Smothers was in his neighborhood in Oceanside, California. Some might consider San Diego's North County to be an area of scenic coastlines, quaint main streets and suburban homes, but police say underneath that pleasant exterior lies a severe gang problem. Jermaine was walking with a few friends when a man with a gun ran at them. Moments later, Mesa Locos gang member Ernesto Flores was shot dead. As a member of a notorious San Diego street gang. Eyewitnesses claimed they saw Jermaine shoot Flores. And a year later, Jermaine was convicted of murder and sentenced to 29 years to life. Then, 10 years later, an officer working an unrelated investigation was told by an informant that it's common knowledge around town that the wrong man is in prison for the murder. That officer got familiar with the case and became convinced Jermaine didn't do it. She's even helping to fight get him out. That's because there's no physical evidence. The eyewitnesses have recanted, Jermaine passed a lie detector test, and a far better suspect has been ID'd. Despite all of that, Jermaine has been locked up for 25 years. So why is Jermaine still in prison? And who did kill Ernesto Flores? We'll get to that after this. Jermaine and I have been speaking for almost a year now, and not just sporadic updates on his case, but frequently, sometimes weekly, on the phone. One time I was at a bar and he called and we talked over a drink. Speaking with Jermaine is easy. We talk about everything, what he's reading. He loves to read self-help books. We talk about his family, his wife, my life, coronavirus, George Floyd, police brutality, things people are talking about these days. So how, how are you doing? First of all, I'm sure you've seen about all the protests and stuff. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm, I'm doing all right. That, that, that video was, was horrific. Yeah, I, I've seen that video and I was just like, just the image of the, the cop on the guy's neck kind of so relatable. I, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to lie, I, I actually got emotional about it. Seeing the marches, that also got me emotional. I think the country, I think the world, with that, with that, with that image, with that that particular situation right there, finally is waking up to it. It's like you know what, this is this is unacceptable. There's no way that you can justify what the officer did. 
It probably sounds like friends having a chat over coffee. You wouldn't know we started talking because of the crime that landed him in prison 25 years ago. Jermaine was born in Baton Rouge, Louisiana in 1975, and he had what many would consider a good upbringing. His father was in the military, and they moved around a lot from North Carolina to Japan and finally to Oceanside, California, a suburb of San Diego. From the outside, the family led a pretty picturesque life. Oceanside is basically sunny year-round with near-perfect weather and gorgeous beaches. Jermaine's mom stayed home taking care of him and his three siblings, but behind the scenes, things were not what they seemed. I grew up in a, a very violent environment. Um, from the time that I can remember, my mother and father would, would have arguments and fight, and they would like break half the things in the house. I would be cowering in my room, and afterwards I would come out and damn everything in the, in the living room and in the kitchen was broken. And after a while, um, I started becoming afraid of my father. Um, and then he was he was just not emotionally supportive, you know, because he's just not that type of guy. I understand that now. But mm-hmm. my young mind um, was telling me other things such as, you know, he doesn't care about me. And, at, you know, at, at a young age, I really looked up to him, looked up to him, but he didn't reciprocate. He never told me he loved me. When they moved to Oceanside, Jermaine wanted to fit in, feel wanted. He found a group of kids just like him. The group was called the Deep Valley Crips Gang. Kind of felt like we were kind of like the same. They had kind of emotional issues, things going on in their household, and that's what people with gang members do. I mean, it's a gang of hurt kids coming together and, you know, trying to have some type of family, some type of structure about themselves. Once you feel that acceptance, and that's what I was looking for. You know, I want mm-hmm. to be accepted. I want to be validated. I want to be. I want to feel loved. And um, ironically, the, the game came, um, gave me that that feeling. The Deep Valley Crips is a predominantly black gang originating in the 1980s in Oceanside. They have a violent history of murder, extortion, kidnapping, and sex trafficking. And how long before the shooting had you been in the gang? I mean, were you initiated? What was what was that like? Um, for uh, probably about four years, I would say. Okay, so you were like pretty in it. Yes, I was in it. I was I was full fledged. I was deeply in it. I had been in jail a couple times already. That didn't deter me. Mm-hmm. So you know, when I would get out. It would seem that I would have more power. I would, it would seem like I, I would have more respect and acceptance. So it kind of made me um, not, not turn away. As pretty as Oceanside is, it had a dark underbelly for decades. High school students told a local newspaper that they had to think about gangs around them when deciding what to wear on any given day or where to hang out. Kids who aren't part of the gangs choose neutral colors for their clothes, white or black, instead of the red and blue associated with rival gangs. The San Diego Regional Gang Task Force estimated in 2004 that there were more than 2,200 gang members in North County. And that's about a decade after its peak in 1995, 
a year that tallied 24 murders, nine of them gang-related. One of those was the fatal shooting of Ernesto Flores. By then, Jermaine had been in the gang for about four years. He'd seen some violence between his gang and rivals, though he'd never been picked up for anything violent himself. By 1995, Jermaine had done six months in prison for grand larceny. Jermaine thought of the gang as his family for years, though around the time he was arrested for Ernesto Flores' murder, he was trying to build a more traditional family. He had a girlfriend and a new baby, and Jermaine says since the first time he held his son, Jermaine Jr., he wanted to be on the right track. So Jermaine was working on the military base, trying to support his family. He hadn't left the gang, but he was starting to wonder if gang life was the only way. On the night of May 11, 1995, 19-year-old Jermaine was walking with a few friends from the gang through an alleyway. They came across members of a rival gang, the Mesa Locos. The Mesa Locos were a violent Latino gang, and the two gangs had been involved in shooting incidents with each other in the past. Ernesto Flores was a high-ranking member of the Mesa Locos gang, and he was walking ahead of his group. When he saw Jermaine and the Deep Valley Crips, he began running towards them with a gun. Um, we all ran from him, and one of the guys that I was with decided to turn around, and he shot One of the Deep Valley Crips pulled out a gun and shot Flores several times. Ernesto Flores was pronounced dead at the hospital. That night, there were actually quite a few witnesses to the incident. Most of them described the shooter as tall, noticeably taller than the others in the gang, and had braids or an afro. Jermaine is a short guy. He's 5'7", and at the time, had a shaved head. There were three main witnesses who testified at trial. A mother and daughter, and Flores' friend. The mother and daughter said they saw Jermaine shoot and kill Flores. But Jermaine says he knows why they specifically picked him out of the group. And these witnesses know me because I live in the area. Yeah, they see me, um... They seen me that day at some point. Um, they might have even seen me walking down the street right before the stuff actually happened. You know what I mean? Um, so that's, that was one of the big things. Like, well, cause these witnesses knew him. Um, the first witness, she tried to say, well, I, I grew up with this guy, and my, my mother had raised him, but I, I only lived in Oceanside for four years before this stuff happened. I was, we was boyfriend and girlfriend. Um, when we was eight, nine years old, none of this stuff was true, but she was just trying to bolster her, her identification um, to, to try to prove that she knew me more than she actually did. The mother-daughter actually went on to influence Flores' friend to say it was Jermaine. Two of the women later recanted, and the mother gave inconsistent testimony, but has since passed away. And even members of Jermaine's own gang told police that he was not the shooter including the man who is believed to be the real shooter of Ernesto Flores, who I'm going to call X, since his name has not been made public yet. X, who was there that night, was actually interviewed by detectives. He didn't admit to the shooting, obviously, but he did tell them that Jermaine wasn't the guy. And I was the only one charged, too. I was the only one charged, even, even though they charged me with conspiracy to commit murder. Um, the other guys admitted that they were there. They were never charged with it. Um, I passed a, a polygraph test. Um, 
you know, halfway through the trial, I, I, I agreed to, to work with them, but I guess they felt like, well, we got you, we got people saying that you did it, so we're going to go ahead and continue to pursue the case, and that's what they did. The entire case against Jermaine was based on eyewitness ID alone. Eyewitness identification should always be second-guessed. The Innocence Project estimates that about 71% of the nearly 400 wrongful convictions that have been overturned by DNA evidence involved mistaken eyewitness IDs. In this case, though, there's a twist. Witnesses did come forward during the trial and testified that Jermaine was the wrong guy. An entire story in the North County Times focuses on that possibility. The headline couldn't be clearer. Eyewitnesses claim wrong gang member arrested. But regardless of those claims that he was not the shooter and the identification of a tall man with dreads or fro, Jermaine was convicted by a jury that deliberated for about three hours. He was sentenced to 29 years to life for the murder of Ernesto Flores. Jermaine says to this day, he and many other people know who shot and killed Ernesto Flores. But at the time, gang mentality told him not to be a snitch. I didn't want to be involved because I knew what that would entail, um, meaning that I would have to get understand and point to the person that actually did it. I didn't want to be a rat, and I didn't, I didn't do that. And that was probably the worst mistake of my life because, you know, truthfully speaking, I, I felt like, you know what, I know I didn't do anything, so I'm like, maybe if I just don't say nothing, it'll all work out for me. And I was solely mistaken. Jermaine slid into the routine of prison life, the days all blurring together. For 10 long years, he kept carrying on like he was still on the streets. He had multiple fighting and disobeying order infractions. Things felt hopeless, and he figured this was it. This was life now. But then, a cop investigating a completely separate case heard about Jermaine doing life for a crime he didn't commit, and everything changed. In 2005, after Jermaine had been in prison for a decade, Kelly Devaney came into the picture. I hate to use the word lucky, but, you know, in terms of people who are wrongfully convicted, I feel you're quite lucky to have a police officer on your side. I'm, I'm, I'm very blessed. You're right. It, 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 it's amazing, you know, just, just a testament of, of, of her character and the person that she is. I mean, she basically, she's going against... Um, her fellow, her fellow officers. Like she's an angel because I don't, you know, truthfully speaking, I don't know where I would be right now, based on the limited funds that my family and I have. But because of her, you know, she got my case reopened, got it a second look. Basically, I just need you to say, you know, who you are. My name is Kelly Devaney. I'm a retired Oceanside Police Department detective. Um, I worked at OPD for approximately 17 years. Kelly had worked in the Oceanside Police Force from 1993 until she retired in 2009. Talking with Kelly was pretty easy, too. I'm sorry, when you first called me when I was at the store, at first I thought you were my friend and neighbor, Maggie. So I was telling you what I was buying and where I was and everything, and then when I realized it wasn't, I was like, oh, silly fool. These days, Kelly invests her time in nature conservation, and we talked about our love for rescuing animals. But that's besides the point. In 2005, Kelly was working in Oceanside's Crimes of Violence Unit. 
and she was investigating a gang-related homicide. And so back in the day, this was just a kind of a crummy little town that catered to all the Marines. It was just hookers and strip clubs and bars and gangs. Yeah. It was a very um, indigent, poor city, and you know, it was a lot of violent crimes, a lot of gang crimes, a lot of shootings and homicides. And I was interviewing somebody about a homicide that had occurred, and it was a gang one. And he said to me, I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not going to give you any information because you guys don't know what you're doing anyway. You'd probably mess it up. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about, but if you have, you know, you want to tell me about it, please do. And he says, well, there's Jermaine's mother's, you know, he went in for jail for something he didn't do. He's in for life. And, you know, he didn't do it. And you still went ahead and put him in. She started asking around. It seemed the whole neighborhood believed without question that Jermaine was innocent. This piqued Kelly's interest, so she dug deeper into Jermaine's case. I feel like so many people, they would be like, just leave it alone, just leave it alone, but you have not done that, and now it's been a decade? Yeah, at least. The more I got into it, and the more I saw how the reactions of other people who said, just leave it alone, don't mess with it, what happened happened, the angrier it made me because once you know something was done incorrectly or it was a wrongful conviction, I mean, you have an obligation in my mind to fix it if you can. During a probation search of the person's home who had told Kelly about Jermaine, she came across some letters. Um, it was basically Jermaine writing to this other guy saying, hey, you know, I'm in here for something I didn't do and I've been thinking about it and I don't think I want to spend the rest of my life in prison you know, for a killing I didn't do, um, can you talk to the name of the person that did do it and get the word out that he needs to step up because if he doesn't, I'm just going to rat him out. I'm going to read parts of the letter. The N-word is used a lot, so I'm just going to skip over those. The first letter from Jermaine, dated December 2001, is addressed to the person who told Kelly about Jermaine. It says, quote, I got 20 years to life. What part of that don't you understand, cuz? I've been gone away from my son for six and a half years for your ass. I'm not going to spend the rest of my life in prison for a person that don't give a damn about me. Point blank. I'll just have to be called a rat. But guess what? I'll be a free one. End quote. The second letter from Jermaine is dated January 2002. It's addressed to the person Jermaine says actually killed Ernesto Flores, who again, I'm calling X. The letter addressed to X says, quote, Like I told you before, homie, I can't spend the rest of my life in prison for something I didn't do. I hate being in this position, dog, but I'm being put into it by a person that has no loyalty and true love for the real. I'll be 27 this year, dog, and I ain't seen not one day in my 20s on the street. I could deal with it if I know I did something wrong, but I didn't, homie. Check it out. Give this hookup to cue ball or anybody that gets the females to come clean. End quote. By females, Jermaine is speaking about the witnesses who testified. They were all women. And Kelly spoke to them during her investigation into Jermaine's case, starting with Flores' friend. She's been spoken with several times, and the last time we spoke with her, she just broke down crying and said, you know, I really don't have any idea who did it. I was just told to say, and I was told that it was him, and so I said it was him. And she, you could tell she was um, anguished about it, really. She felt bad about it for years. Mm-hmm. And then when I spoke to the mother-daughter team, the daughter said she, she admitted that she did not really know who it was, but the mother kind of stuck to her um, original declaration. 
So Kelly decided to take a closer look at the crime scene and figured out, actually, they couldn't have seen what they claimed to see. She doesn't see how it's possible. Right. So you actually went to the scene and you yes, proved that. Times. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit about that for listeners. I mean, what did you do and what did you figure out? Well, we just went to the actual spots where they, um, the witnesses said they were standing when the shooting occurred and then the aftermath of the shooting. And for instance, the mother daughter, they were standing so far away. Um, and the shooting took place in a little alley. They just couldn't possibly see it from where they were. Not only was it a, a fair distance, it was in an alley. And there's just, you, they couldn't do it. And then Flores's friend. Who initially had said that she was, um, you know, kind of standing next to the guy that got shot. Turns out later she said she was at the head of the alley, up on a street. And from up there she couldn't have seen anything either. In 2006, Kelly and her sergeant met with a deputy district attorney who prosecuted Jermaine's case, Valerie Summers. She presented all her evidence, witness recampments and IDs of X, the real shooter. Kelly says by the time she and her sergeant got back to their office after the meeting, Summers, the prosecutor, had made some calls. By the time we got back to the office after talking to her, she had called our lieutenant, who was waiting for us when we got back to the office, told us to come in and ordered me to give everything in the uh, file back to him and that I was to no longer look into it. It was like a scene from a cop show where the boss orders the underlings to just leave it alone. If you're half the detective you think you are, you'll put this one down fast and take us all off the hook. The longer this goes on, the worse the payback's going to be. I want to take a minute to thank Rick Garibrandt, a showrunner and director working on a documentary about Jermaine. Also, thank you to Kayla Higgins, Jermaine's wife, who has tirelessly taken every text, email, and phone call from me while working and going to school full-time, while also working on Jermaine's case full-time. Kelly retired early due to a rotator cuff injury. Higher-ups didn't think she would be able to continue to do normal police work. She says, like, fire a shotgun. I asked Kelly if it's possible that they wanted her out because of the investigation, and she said she actually had never thought of that before. And to be clear, Kelly doesn't think Jermaine's arrest and conviction was malicious. There were so many shootings, so many murders going on that people were just uh, so busy and had so many cases. We were a small department. And I think they saw, you know, a couple of witnesses that said this was him, it was Jermaine, and they took that as, all right, let's run with that because... We don't have time. We don't have all the time in the world to keep looking into it or investigating more. We'll take the witness statements and go with it. But now that she spent time reinvestigating the case, she couldn't understand why no one was willing to just look at the new evidence. Maybe it's because Jermaine wasn't a model citizen. He was in a gang and gangs have reputations. I guess people are going to be like, well, he was involved in, you know, bad stuff anyway. So why should I really care? He probably would have shot someone anyway. Um, you know, for someone who says something like that, I mean, what do you have to say? Well, first of all, you have to know the individual, you know, um, being a gang member, that's, it's, it's a big misconception as far as gang members. Everybody thinks all gang members are these super violent, predatory individuals. There's different levels 
in a gang. You know what I mean? Some gang members make a point to stay out of the criminal side of things. The gang's their family, something they kind of fell into because of the neighborhood they lived in or a relative in the gang. So you got to judge everybody based on what they, what who they are and what they actually did. You just can't have a, a blanket. Oh, he's a gang member, so he's a bad guy. That's that's not, that's not necessarily true. Not only that, I mean, what kind of precedent would that set? If oh, just because you're a gang member and you you you, you deserve this or you deserve that. You know, what if I could have easily changed my life? And, and I was on that path already because uh, I was, had a newborn son and I was out there. I had a job, you know, so I was taking care of him and I was taking care of my son's mother at the same time. So you can't just necessarily say, well, since he's a gang member, he has no value. You know, people change all the time. It's impossible to know if Jermaine would have landed in prison anyway. He knows he was on a precarious path, but he also knows that he was capable of change. And he knows that because he's changed a lot in prison. When I when I first came, I was I was numb. I I, I was I was a jackass um, because I was I was a gang member and I still had that mentality. Um, so I didn't take a, I didn't take a lot of responsibility for anything. You know I didn't like now I I see things differently. I mean. I, I take responsibility for, for, being a, for being a gang member. If I wasn't a gang member, nine times out of ten, I wouldn't even been in this situation. So I had to kind of realize that. But it took me a while to get there because I, I, I blame the system. Um, I blame everybody except for myself. Um, it wasn't until I kind of, you know, was like my, my maybe my tenth year in that I, I realized, like, wait a minute, man, you you pointing the finger at the wrong people. Prosecutor Valerie Summers and the original investigators refuse to hear that. Kelly said she doesn't understand why they're standing up for this clearly questionable conviction. It's kind of been an obsession, you know, and it's just it's what's bothered me the most is the people that were involved in the initial conviction, the detectives, that district attorney, um, deputy DA, that they're not even pos- they're not open to the, even the possibility. They won't even listen to you know, what I have or the evidence I had to, because they're not willing to even, you know, I'm sorry, I'm losing, I, you know, they're not willing to even consider that possibly they made a mistake. Yeah. Especially when you're talking about somebody spending their life in prison. Yeah. You know, open your eyes and ears, listen, you know, and if you did something wrong or if you think there's a chance it wasn't right, I don't understand why you wouldn't want to fix it. Right. If someone came to me and said, I think you messed up on this case, I would be like, well, tell me how. Right. I don't want to see someone in jail forever for something they didn't do. Think about this. This is a case that's been reinvestigated by an actual detective on the force, and she can't get prosecutors to take another look? Usually people begging to have a case weighed again are advocates or family members, maybe some pro bono lawyers. What chance does Jermaine have if even one of the city's own is ignored? Coming up, you know how sometimes cops in movies just can't let a case go? That was Kelly, who decided to make a last ditch effort to get someone else to look at what she'd found. After Kelly was told to shut down her investigation, she went to the Innocence Project to present her findings. She wasn't just going to drop this. 
The Innocence Project took his case and Jermaine finally got an evidentiary hearing in 2019. And this was like the big, you know, this was going to be it. Let's just, we got to get everybody in here to say what they saw. The judge seemed open to it very much. And um, so many people didn't show up. And I tried to go find some even while the court case was still going on. And I was just told, I mean, people would answer the door, mother or something, and say, oh, so-and-so's not here. And I knew she was, you know. Neighbors would say, of course she's living there. She's home every day. But they just, they wanted nothing to do with it. Kelly believes the witnesses are scared to speak out because the real killer still has influence. He's made threats against um, a lot of the witnesses over the years. That's the reason a lot of them didn't show up for any of the court appearances. They were told in no uncertain terms that if they did, they'd be next. Five witnesses did not show up to the hearing, including the two women who had recanted their statements. In the ruling, the judge seemed to agree that Jermaine didn't appear to be the shooter. But because so few witnesses were willing to take the stand, the judge says there was not enough evidence to reopen the case. And just because a judge thinks the jury might have made a mistake doesn't mean they can toss out the verdict. That's just not how the system works. It breaks my heart that he's still in there for something he didn't do. And his whole life, we don't know what he was going to be. We didn't know if he was going to continue to be in the gang or not, or if he would just, you know, go back with the girlfriend and his son and become a normal person. And who knows, you know, it's just so sad. He never got the chance. So this is where Jermaine is today. He is now 44 and up for parole in March of 2021. And part of being granted parole is showing remorse for the crime one was convicted of. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm preparing my parole packet right now. Um, I had to do a, a victim impact statement. And, uh, so. well, let, me, let me ask you, though, what's it like to make a victim impact statement when you haven't, you, you don't have a victim? Well... I wasn't from the lifestyle. I was uh, I was a gang member. So indirectly, I was in my community um, committing crimes, being with gang members. And so I contributed to that whole atmosphere to make stuff like that even possible. I wasn't on the other side of it, you know, um, trying to help kids uh, get away from gangs and mentor them and stuff, uh, and stuff like that. So I was actually part of the problem. You know, even though I didn't do this, you know, I still have some type of responsibility for even engaging in that type of activity. I do owe some responsibility. I didn't, I didn't tell them who actually shot the guy. You know, I lied to the police about even knowing who shot him. You know, those are those are not those are not things that um, decent, civilized people in real society does. You know, and I end up I end up not only hurting the victim. Um, and their family and not not being able to get true justice for them, but I hurt my family tremendously of um, you know of me being out there, you know. Yeah. So you know, and that's on my shoulders. After Kelly came into Jermaine's life, it wasn't just his case status that changed. He started turning things around. 
To date, he's taken college classes in psychology. He was a facilitator for an alternatives to violence program. He was the chairman of self-improvement and awareness groups and has completed programs in NAAA and criminal and addictive thinking recovery. When he's out, he wants to start a nonprofit, connecting innocent people still incarcerated with lawyers and social media campaigns. Jermaine says most people who get their cases overturned have both. And so I started telling him about one case that I'm covering where the person can't even get a lawyer. Right. Yeah, it's difficult. I, I remember I was going through that. and I was, I was writing, I literally wrote hundreds and hundreds of, of letters to people trying to get people to look at my case. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if it wasn't for Kelly, I, I probably, this project probably would have never even picked it up. Yeah. You know, so I, I get it, man. It's, it's a struggle, especially if you don't have any money and you don't have any support. It, yeah. It's next to, next to impossible to get your case overturned. But Jermaine is now in a different place than he was back then. You know, I'm noticing in your voice and the way you're talking, you sound um, really uh, much more excited. And maybe I'm excited. I don't know. Um, as um, my day gets closer, you know, I, I get more optimistic. And then as I'm, I'm doing the work and I'm going through my, my insight letters and, and the work that I have to do, for, uh, the prep I have to do for board, it's giving me more insight into myself. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm really understanding, like, you know what, this, I do get it. You know what I mean? I'm just not this, you know, just ex-game member, don't have a clue. But I do. I really have empathy, and I really have a, a, a deep understanding of the impact that I had on my community. Jermaine says when he gets out, he plans to give back to his community and make a difference in a positive way this time, like the nonprofit he wants to start. And you know, I feel very positive and hopeful of the future. And part of that hope for the future is just being with his family, especially Jermaine Jr., his son, who was eight months old when Jermaine went to prison. How old is he now? He's 25. I've been in prison for his whole life except for eight months. He was eight wow. months old when I came to prison. And I've seen him, like, for the first time, like, visually seen him for the first time when I went to, uh, when I went to court about four months ago. You saw him for the first time at your hearing? Had he never visited you in prison? I saw him for the first time um, because I've been incarcerated at my hearing, yes. Um, No visit to prison. His his mother, um, unfortunately, she never felt the need to, to bring him up here. I asked Jermaine why his son never visited him on his own once he was old enough to do so. Jermaine says it's because his son also has a criminal record. He committed a robbery, and convicted criminals are not allowed to visit others who are incarcerated, even family. This is a theme that will come up again and again in this series. Children of incarcerated parents are more likely to wind up in prison as well as drop out of school, have anxiety, depression, PTSD, and become a parent when younger than 18 years old. And it doesn't matter if the parent in prison is innocent or not. Locking up the wrong person, statistically, creates more criminals. What was that like to see, physically see your son? You know, I had to hold myself back from like, being really emotional in that moment. Between seeing him, um, me being in court, and that particular day that I seen him in court, I was getting denied, my writ was getting denied. You know, I knew I was going to get denied because I knew that the witnesses didn't show up, so I kind of was anticipating that, but to hear it, but then to see my son upset, to see my wife upset, um, 
that was probably one of the hardest, hardest, hardest parts of, of hardest times of me being in prison. It was also kind of reinforced my commitment to um, changing my life, you know, to really making sure I'm doing the right things to get up, get, get up out of here. The other thing Jermaine works hard for is finally being with his wife, Kayla. Um, a friend of mine knew a friend of hers, and we became pen pals, and from pen pals, you know, we, um, our friendship blossomed, like, we was just, we just hit it off, and we've been together ever since, since 2011, and we were married in 2012, and, uh, she's definitely, you know, my, my biggest supporter. When she came in my life, you know, it, it, she kind of, um, she kind of made me mature more, and made me mature faster. Yeah. Because she started things she's not, she's not going to tolerate, and she yeah. definitely rubbed off on me in, in, in good, positive ways. So when you get out, are you, Kayla has a place, and you'll move in with Kayla? You have 60 seconds remaining. Yeah, she has a place. Um, she has a condo, fully furnished. We just, we good. I'm, I'm all set up for all that stuff, so. Okay. She's just waiting on me to come home. I want to have the opportunity to, to make amends for, you know, not making the right decisions in the past. Um, and I'm just excited of trying, trying to succeed, and I'm, I'm going to succeed. All right, Jermaine. Okay, all right, thank you. All right, Maggie. Bye. For full transparency, I was asked to and did write a letter in support of Jermaine's release. After all, the goal of this program is to do more than just report the cases. If the evidence points away from the convicted person, I want to do what I can to help point that out and get justice and solve these cases. If you want to help Jermaine, go to freejermaine.org. There you can find petitions and information on his case. If you like this show, please, please, please rate and review. It takes two seconds, and the more people that do this, the higher the show will get on the charts, and the more likely it is that the word will get out and the right people will hear these stories. Unjust and Unsolved is produced and reported by me, Maggie Freeling, with editorial consulting from Amber Hunt. For more information and resources, go to unjustandunsolved.com. You can find Unjust and Unsolved on Twitter and Instagram at Unjust Unsolved and join the discussion on Facebook at Unjust and Unsolved Podcast Discussion Group. Unjust and Unsolved is a production of the Obsessed Network. You can find all their shows at ObsessedNetwork.com. 